Welcome to Conscious Physician Medicine and Psychedelics, where we give voice to experts and people in the community using psychedelics as medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Lita Fatemi. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Conscious Physician Medicine and Psychedelics. We are joined by Dr. Audrey Wells, one of my dear friends and one of my favorite humans that I've met in the past year. It's so wonderful to have you here, Dr. Wells. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I am a sleep medicine physician, and uh, we have something in common in that we both practiced in Albuquerque for quite a while. I was there with my private practice, and I've been in sleep medicine for about 15 years now. I'm also certified in obesity medicine, and I like to combine treatments for weight loss and sleep problems to kind of give a whole health upgrade for people who are struggling. And yeah, I'm currently in Minnesota doing an online educational platform for people with insomnia and sleep apnea. One of the things that I think is really interesting and I hope we talk about today is the consciousness involved with sleep and how higher consciousness or lower consciousness can definitely affect one's frame of mind. And I think it's entirely relevant to what you teach in consciousness and conscious life practices. Oh, thank you so much. You know, sleep is a foundation to well-being. Sleep is a foundation to us being alive, number one. And secondly, to our mental health, we know that lack of sleep causes anxiety, depression, suicidality, you name it. It feeds into what we call, you know, I I don't like to call them disorders, but suffering, just mental Mm -hmm. health and suffering or just suffering in general. We have more pain when we don't sleep. And it's actually one of the conscious life practices that we talk about extensively in my program. And it's interesting to be in this field of medicine and having trained the way we, we do, given that we miss so many opportunities to sleep as we are training. And then you come out and you're like, wow, that's detrimental to me and my executive decision making, Mm -hmm. functioning as a human in my, not only my patient care, but also in my family life and being with my children and being with my family. I would love to hear some of that, you know, that connection between uh, suffering and not sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this this affected me personally, not only in medical school, I, I was in a program that was quite rigorous with the call schedule and such, and then uh, transitioning into internship and residency. I actually did a pediatric residency instead of three years. I had it concentrated into two years so that I could spend more time doing research in my fellowship, which was in pediatric pulmonary medicine. And so there was a period of, let's see, that would be four, six, seven, eight years where I was almost constantly sleep deprived. And in my pediatric pulmonary fellowship, there was a very high ICU emphasis. And even though I loved the ICU processes and the physiology, and I was in a program that had a very robust lung transplant service, I started bumping up against what I could reasonably do as a person. And if I 
was to sort of stay on that career path, I realized that I would not be very happy. And that was a hard decision for me to make. It came into my view that the whole sleep medicine thing came into view when I had attended American Thoracic Society conference. And the irony was I was in a full day of cystic fibrosis talks and I was falling asleep in the morning. So I got up to walk around and I saw another uh, full day symposium on sleep medicine. I just walked in and I was really captured by this whole field and how it could profoundly improve people's lives. So there's a little pun in this, but it was eye-opening. You know, I, I was awoke <laughs> to the idea that sleep medicine could be my career. And, you know, the overlap with pulmonary medicine is great because obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, complex sleep apnea, and on and on have strong pulmonary components. So I felt a lot of congruence with that. And, you know... I think drawing on my family culture, my parents always emphasized sleep was important. Sleep was how you improve academic performance, physical performance, and emotional regulation. They didn't use those words, but I'm just telling you. Um, and so I kind of had this narrative already that sleep should be prioritized. And with all of that, I just decided to pursue that as my career and it's been fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's so interesting that your parents emphasized it back then even because we still have a lot of parents that don't know. And I grew up in a culture myself, in the Persian culture, I'm from Iran, where we start eating dinner in parties at 9 p.m. Mm. We just, you know, we eat dessert like at 11 p.m. And so the kids are also part of this. And we know the role of community, how important that is, of course, in our not only mental health, but overall mortality. Um, but it's fascinating that that was not emphasized for me in my upbringing. And I remember that if I ever missed a night of sleep as a child, I would faint the next day. Mm -hmm. I literally would faint. Like I would feel so off, but I always wanted to keep going, keep going. You know, cousins are here and aunts are here and you want to, you want to do things. And immediately I would feel this very significant negative physiological consequence when I would skip a night. Yeah. You know, one thing I like to talk about is Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Are you familiar with this? Oh, yes, I love yeah. it. So it's, it's this pyramid, right, where each level builds on the stability of the level below it. And so at the foundation are things like breathing air, getting sleep, getting food, water, shelter. And, you know, when you look at the foundation, um, what's interesting is if you go 24 hours without food, 24 hours without water, you may have some effects from that, but they are not nearly as profound as the effects to your functioning as going without one night of sleep or 24 hours without sleep. And, you know, I, someone recently was saying, yeah, but there's air, you know, you can't go 24 hours without air. And I thought about this for a while. And what I realized is there is a situation where your body will actually choose sleep over air. Okay. So brace yourself because this is kind of a academic explanation. 
When I look at a sleep study for someone who has obstructive sleep apnea, they have pauses in breathing that last at least 10 seconds and their blood oxygen levels dip as a result. And that's an, a scorable event. There are people who have longer pauses, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and I'm, I watch their blood oxygen levels go to the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, some people undetectable, okay? That is an example of the brain choosing sleep over breathing because their EEG waves show that they are still sleeping. And for different people, there's this threshold, which is probably genetically determined, beyond which the brain does not tolerate low oxygen levels. But it's just fascinating to see that in real time, the brain choosing to sleep instead of oxygenate. And, you know, for that reason, I think sleep is just fascinating. That is so cool. That is so cool. That's a, that's a, that's a fact you never hear from anybody else, but if sleep medicine experts, <laughs> a big sleep nerd is going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And so I'm curious about your own journey also into sleep medicine. So then you left the practice of, or you'd never like actually engaged with ICU medicine and you went into sleep medicine. Is that what I'm understanding? Not outside of fellowship. Yeah. I, I did the Peds pulmonary fellowship and then right went into sleep medicine fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. And it did that, did the information you were learning change your own sleep behaviors and patterns and any of that? This is such a great question, and I get it quite a bit because people are interested in how does the sleep expert sleep, right? Like, do you know any magical secrets? Is your sleep perfected 365 days a year? And I love bringing a lot of humility to this question because the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> sleep medicine doctors are still human beings. And, you know, the truth is human beings have different things going on, different levels of tolerance, different stress levels and ability to manage stress, medical conditions, physical conditions, et cetera. So while I have maybe a very deep toolbox to draw from, I would still say that periodically, even now, I have a bad night of sleep. And sometimes, most of the time, I would say I can pinpoint it to something it's usually that I consumed caffeine too late in the day because I love coffee. But I went through a period of just profound grief and stress over an infertility journey that I had for about 10 years. And it severely affected my ability to sleep. And so I was really doing all that I could to support myself in my sleep during that time. But there were definitely moments where I would show up to my clinical practice with bags under my eyes and feeling like, you know, this is really hard to function without sleep, even to function as a sleep medicine specialist without sleep. And, you know, at the time, I think there was a degree of like, oh, my credibility has taken a hit. But now looking back on it, what I realize is that I was walking a mile in my patient's shoes. So I really understand 
what it's like when people are struggling with their sleep. It can make you crazy. It can make you feel like you have lost control of your body and it can make you feel like you have forgotten how to sleep. So because of that experience, I kind of keep a finger on it when I'm dealing with someone who feels like there's no hope and I can tell them there absolutely is. Your brain knows how to do this fundamentally. You may have to relearn some things, but your body will sleep. It will come back to that place where it comes naturally. Yeah. And can we talk about some of the effects that you have felt in your life, that personal experience, and you also see in your patients from a lack of sleep? And then later, if we can get into some of the techniques that you share with your patients and your clients and how to navigate that. And, you know, people with insomnia, I cannot imagine what they go through, but just to give a little bit of a perspective. Yeah. So the first part of your question was, um, how does, how did it affect you? You know, you said it's scary not to yeah. sleep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Funny, because um, one of the primary effects is uh, short-term memory, which I just demonstrated for you. Uh, you know, sleep, I like to say, is for the brain and the mind. So those are two different things, really. I think of the mind as kind of the consciousness that the brain produces. And so when you are not sleeping well or you're not sleeping enough, or your sleep period has a lot of variability in the context of timing, um, you can experience negative effects. Short-term memory is one. Lack of focus or concentration is another. Uh, irritability or negative mood tends to be more prominent with uh, sleep problems. You can get sort of a, a baseline increase in your sympathetic nervous system that manifests with elevated heart rate, muscle aches sometimes, headaches. And, you know, there's also a safety issue, which I like to bring up because one of the biases that happens in an underslept brain is overestimating your ability to do things like drive a car. And it's something that comes into my world quite a bit, especially with teens who are inexperienced drivers or people with long commutes that are, you know, kind of so familiar that they check out in a sense as they're driving. But if, if you are behind the wheel of a car with an underslept brain, you are basically driving a weapon and even a microsleep, a quick, you know, shut off of your brain because it is so deprived has the potential to seriously injure someone else or you. And when people start finding out that, you know, they just fell asleep at a stoplight and so they kind of get that, you know, uh, beep from behind or they jolt awake or even running off on the rumble strips next to the highway, it's already too late. You know, you're already in the red zone for danger, truly. But the, the problem is that a person's bias would be, I can make it to the next exit, or this, this route is so familiar to me, I can make it home. But the truth is that drowsy driving is significant, um, it's dangerous, and I would certainly hope that anyone who is that sleep deprived, they're starting to notice signs, would get help immediately. Yeah, pull over. Like there's, you know, 
there are ways to deal with it other than driving continuing doing what you're doing and it's so funny as you were saying that you know increased heart rate and the headache and all of that took me right back to residency where we would do 30 hour calls for cardiology and you know of course overnight you know ICU call Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that in those states and, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it because we have shared experience around it you are truly in the sympathetic state the entire time. I mean, there was not a minute that I had to myself to really, you know, to even like fall asleep. Um, afterwards, it was like a crash, you know, and everybody, you know, navigates that differently too. I know the residents that would go home and they would take their Benadryl and this and that to just like, you know, just pass out pretty much yeah. for the rest of the day until the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was you know, I was super awake. I would feel the tachycardia and the hyperacute senses uh, be super busy. Didn't even know how the night just passed by me. And in the morning, I think because of my hypervigilance, because we all have it to some degree, get home and then you're like, whoa, I am a zombie. Like the ground is moving under me, you know, now that you're becoming conscious of it and you're letting your guard down but yeah is there any studies looking at all of this I knew AC Jimmy was looking at this for like our you know restriction and they pulled it back and there's just it's not scientific what they're doing is is really what it is yeah and I, I think there's some conflict there from interested parties who want to maintain the status quo so you know it's a shame because I think as physicians in training, we sacrifice some of our humanity in more ways than one in order to make the requirements of the program. But also, you know, I don't know about you, but that vigilance for me was also because I was trying to consume all of this information and there were life and death decisions being made and, you know, being aware of or sensitive to a patient's situation was really important. So it wasn't just like the sleep deprivation alone. It was also like this massive amount of stress that came from the vigilance of the of the program. I'll describe a few situations that I've uh, talked about that I'm not proud of, but you know, in hindsight, it just kind of underscores the fact that I'm still a human being, and anybody's response to stress is going to be that that heightened uh, sympathetic nervous system tone because it's a threat when you're missing sleep. So on one instance, I remember I was working on the 12th floor of my training program, which was a, a children's neuro floor. So seizures and VP shunts and, you know, just, you know, tough kids who were needing a lot of attention and no chance of sleeping on call. And I was on call that night, and I mentioned my program was truncated. So a lot of times I had to do Q2 or Q3 call. And I remember this one time when I got a page. We had pagers back then, so I'm dating myself a little bit. So I got a page from the ER, and there was just, you know, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I had just had it. And I was really irritated with the admission that was being called up. And I kind of was, my tone was biting. I felt irritable, very resistant because my brain wanted to protect me. 
And later on, I kind of reflected on that and I realized that is not the kind of person that I want to be when I get a call that a kid needs an admission to the hospital. And there was quite a bit of shame wrapped up in that for me because, you know, I, I think as residents and, and fellows, we're expected to be superhuman. And I still had that frame for myself. But now that I'm a little bit more seasoned in life, I can have a lot of compassion for that person who was just barely hanging on. Okay. And, you know, another time I remember I was driving home post-call. It was, it was dark. So not only had I been up all night, but uh, it was getting to be twilight and I was awake for however long that is. And I didn't live very far from the hospital. I had pulled up to a left turning lane and the light turned from red to green. And I remember looking at that. I had stopped the car and I remember looking at the light turning to green and I could not remember what that meant. What was green? What was I supposed to do on green? Had I been asleep just a second before, where was I? Like I was disoriented and in my car behind the wheel and in that moment, I was scared. Like that got my heart rate up and it took me a long time to cool off when I got home, thankfully, safely. But, you know, these things happen often. And I would really hope anyone watching this podcast would have the sense to really protect themselves because you can't, you can't sort of think your way out of sleepiness. You have to honor your body. You have to honor your body. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so with that, I would love to hear some of the advice you give people that come to you with difficulty sleeping. We've talked about this briefly before, and I love your perspective on it always. So yeah, tell us some about that. So one of the big, big problems I see is getting back to sleep after a nighttime awakening. If I had a magic wand and I could just wave it for anybody who's having that issue, I would. So I want to kind of set this up a little bit to say that I'm a coach in addition to a physician. And when somebody comes to me with a problem like nighttime awakenings, it's often helpful to look at what is competing with sleep. And that's a great place to start coaching because you'll have a story about it and how your brain is kind of making that more important than sleep. So with nighttime awakenings, one of the things I'd like to normalize straight away is that people, especially if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, do not expect that you're going to sleep throughout the night every night. That is simply unachievable, especially as each passing decade goes by. It takes about three to five minutes of wakefulness to remember that awakening or to be conscious of that awakening. So if I'm looking at a sleep study with all of the EEG sensors on the scalp, what's normal in terms of brief arousal is five to 20 times in an overnight period, so seven to eight hours. So for perspective, 
that's that seems like quite a lot, right? But you know, waking up once or twice, maybe five minutes to 30, 45 minutes, that's okay. And if you know it's okay, then you tend not to get stressed about it and look at the clock and start making all these little calculations about how your life is going to be a disaster if you don't get back to sleep right now. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. It's just so <laughs> hilarious, especially with the elders in my family. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that does a lot to get you stressed out, which is not conducive to sleep. So, you know, just normalizing the idea that, oh, I woke up no problem, roll over, get comfy, and, you know, relax. Nighttime awakenings and even trouble getting to sleep, I sometimes look for themes in the way a person thinks. So a common phrase that someone might say is, I wish I could turn my brain off at night, or I wish I could just shut down and get rid of my monkey mind. And when I start digging into uh, what that means exactly, the themes that come up, tend to be something around not enough, not safe, or not congruent, okay? So not enough meaning imposter syndrome. Oh, I didn't do that as well as I should have, or you know, somebody is not giving me enough attention. Um, not safe maybe, oh, I just found out about this lab test. My mind is chewing on that and ruminating. Uh, not congruent means I really hate my job, but it, I can't get out of it and I have to stay. You know, all of these things are going to sort of highlight these negative thinking patterns that we have at night. And then I can kind of work down with someone to find the antidote to that. I like to say that sleep is an emotional experience and there are emotions that are compatible with sleep and there's emotions that are not compatible with sleep. I'm going to ask you, Lita, when you can't sleep, can you think of an emotion that's kind of blocking your sleep? You know, it's so interesting. Everything you just talked about, I've experienced in my life, right? Because <laughs> we are human. But I do love my sleep. So I'm a good sleeper and I make mm -hmm. it a point. But yeah, you know, I guess feeling anxiety, maybe that congruence thing coming up. Mm -hmm. Um I don't have it as much since I no longer work for a large institution because there was a lot of cognitive dissonance going on there. That was really difficult for me. That feeling of safety and congruence are the two that resonate when I when I have moments of not being able to sleep. Yeah. Consider yourself lucky if you sleep well most of the time. I, I think that's fantastic. But what you're describing is really common. And, you know, there is a, a definite negativity bias that our brains have. I like to call it mind after midnight. And so you can't really believe your thoughts as much as you can at 10 o'clock in the morning. And what's happening is your frontal lobes, your neocortex is always inhibiting your amygdala or your emotional center. And over the course of the day, it fatigues, okay? So that's the part of your brain that needs sleep the most. Now, when it's getting sleep, it's repairing, it's rinsing metabolites and, and things. But if you wake up in the middle of the night, the wash cycle isn't done, okay? So your frontal lobes become very leaky 
and your amygdala can come out to play. So as a pediatrician, I like to say your mind becomes like a toddler that wants the candy. You know, you, you kind of chew and ruminate on things. You um, have black and white thinking and other maladaptive thought patterns. You are more fearful or more judgmental or that agitation or anxiety tends to come out because your frontal lobes are not capable of giving your brain the antidote. Like, you're really okay nothing can be done about this now, you know, those kinds of things are ineffective. So I work with people to kind of recognize those patterns and then kind of move through them in a way that's much more productive than just sitting there trying to go back to sleep. And <laughs> <laughs> checking the clock. Why is yes. it not? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating that you bring that up, the, the connection between the prefrontal cortex and, and the amygdala, the limbic system, because that's what we see in all mental health disorders, suffering, whatnot. It's the limbic system that gets super active and it's, you know, going crazy on fMRIs and it's the prefrontal cortex that's not as engaged. And of course, you, empathy, compassion, excessive decision-making, all of it resides yeah. in the prefrontal cortex. And so, you know, one of my things is you know, if you are functioning from a place of trauma and rumination, that's how you're going to make decisions. That's mm -hmm. where that's the space you're, because we, we know that's where the brain is active in, in those moments. And a lot of people have a very difficult time getting out of the limbic system. So what do you suggest for your patients or clients, uh, coaching clients to, to do in order to kind of calm the amygdala and activate the prefrontal cortex? Yeah, this seems like a hopeless challenge for a lot of people that come to me. And, you know, a lot of times they've gone through all kinds of sleep aids, both prescribed and over the counter, or they've tried to live with it, or they let themselves fall asleep on the couch and then try to transition to the bedroom in the middle of the night. So I just want to point out that by the time people come to me, they have tried a bunch of stuff. And what I do is kind of a top-down and bottom-up approach. So the top-down approach is a little bit what I was describing earlier. Like first, there's the recognition that you're having this uh, maladaptive thought pattern in the middle of the night, and it's producing the emotion that is not congruent with sleep. And to some extent, you can handle that if you're prepared for it. And it's a very personalized toolkit to help somebody come to thoughts or feelings that they can focus on as an antidote to what's keeping them awake. So that may involve spending time journaling in the middle of the day to kind of prepare yourself for that, keeping notes about that next to the bedside to make it more accessible, really just kind of understanding how the mind works in the middle of the night and why you should not believe your thoughts or at least all of your thoughts. And, you know, it, it's sort of a personalized journey to help somebody work through that. The bottom-up approach is more about harnessing the parasympathetic nervous system as uh, a way to neutralize um, that experience if it's accompanied by discomfort in the body, elevated heart rate, shallow breathing. You know, I, I help people with different types of breath work, um, uh, pillow positioning, when to get up out of bed, when to not get up out of bed. And 
I want to say that on the backdrop of all of this, I'm always kind of having in my mind the possibility of sleep disorders, which are horribly, horribly underdiagnosed. And, you know, for some people, that diagnosis of a sleep disorder unlocks a major upgrade to their sleep once that disorder is treated. But I would say that just in a nutshell, the top-down, bottom-up approach is extraordinarily effective when personalized to somebody experiencing sleep problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I love that you see it from such a different perspective than um, a lot of physicians that I know out there who are practicing sleep medicine. And I love the the coaching piece to it because then you can navigate and you can personalize instead of in industrialized medicine, mm-hmm. we tend to categorize and we tend to say, oh, this is this is it. There's no more I have for you. But there's so much nuance to it and understanding the, um, you know, the mind, spirit, body connection, it really helps us help others. I I think there's overlap in what we do. And I just want to get a little bit deep for a second here, which is to say that if you are somebody who has sleep struggles, then recognizing that sleep needs prioritization may be the second or third thing I talk about because really a sleep problem can be a sign that there's a self-relationship problem. And when you're kind of going about your day, there's lots of stimuli coming at you, right? We've got socializing, we've got our jobs, we've got our exercise, we've got our meals and all of this stuff. And if we ever get bored, all we have to do is pick up this guy, if there's any boredom or discomfort. And we kind of don't have any white space anymore to process feelings or to even be with ourselves and see what our self-relationship is like. So not until it's quiet and dark at night and it's time to shut down and relax, does that relationship with yourself come out. I like to say that at nighttime, you know, you're doing a U-turn, meaning Y-O-U-turn. You're going inside yourself and If things are safe and congruent and enough, then sleep becomes easier and your relationship with yourself becomes easier. And that's really what we're shooting for, isn't it? That's really what a conscious life is, isn't it? So I think that this is all kind of tied together. And I love helping people recognize that their relationship with themselves deserves the top priority in their life. Absolutely. And so tell me, when you mentioned initially to talk about being conscious or unconscious, is this what you were referring to? Yes, exactly. Just that self-awareness is something that needs to be cultivated to have the enough, the, the safety and the congruence that you need to fall asleep. Absolutely. And it's a journey. Mm -hmm. It is. This is a lifelong (laughs) practice. And, you know, I'll be the first to say that it takes effort on my part every day, even for me and my own sleep. 
Yes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your beautiful words and wisdom that you're sharing with our community at large. I know you do incredible speaking events all over nationally. And for you to join us here to teach us about your methods is wonderful. And where can we find you? Where can our audience find you if they need you? Yeah, I'll give a couple of uh, websites. I'm I'm on social media. I'm still warming up to social media. Let's put it that way. But I can be found at supersleepmd.com. And that's for people who have sleep apnea and insomnia. I do group coaching through that platform. I also do one-on-one coaching. And I think that's really great for somebody who wants to up-level their personal well-being, their sleep, their daytime performance. And for that, I would go to awellsmd.com and see if my material resonates. And we'll include both in the show notes. Fantastic. To access. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Wells. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Same. One, two, three.